Hey there, welcome to our AP Legal Zone podcast brought to you by AP Lawyers. We are your top fix for all weekly law updates, including family, immigration, wills, and estates law. Just a friendly reminder we are not your lawyers, and everything contained in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and not to be construed as legal advice. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can stay connected with any updates and get notified about our new episodes. Hi there, I'm Angela Princewell. And I'm Shireen Abdi. Our topic today is spousal support. So Shireen, what is spousal support? Well, that's a tough question. Spousal support, I mean, difficult to explain in one sentence, but ultimately it's the money paid to one spouse um, after they separate. Um, I guess. Way form. <laughs> the simplest way I can explain it. Yeah, so um, the way it's described in the Family Law Act, Act essentially is that every spouse has an obligation to support him or herself and to support the other spouse as well. And this is not just in a vacuum. Obviously, it's based on the needs and the extent that um, a person is able to do so. But now when we talk about spouse, what who is a spouse? So a spouse, as defined by the Family Law Act, um, is really a person who's either married or a common law spouse for at least a period of three years. Um, and, it, and if you have a child, then only a period of one year. So um, now that you know what spousal support is, I'm just joking there. We just, we're just getting started. I was going to end it like now you know what spousal support is. You know what a spouse is. But really when, you, when you're talking spousal support, um, you know, it's it, it really in its simplest form, you're, we're looking, usually looking at one party anymore um, than the other and sort of, you know, balancing out and, and providing for that other party following separation. And some of the factors um, under the Divorce Act that the courts required to look at is, you know, how long um, did you guys cohabit? So this is not just the length of the marriage and this would, you know, the, the duration of, of cohabitation. Um, the duties, the functions that were performed by each spouse during cohabitation and any agreement that you guys have that deal with the issue of spousal support. So. I know before the podcast started, Shireen had mentioned something like it's not it's not a right. So when you talk about child support, is that automatic right there? Shireen had said it's not a right. It's you have to be entitled to it, right? Yes. And on a case by case basis, entitlement will be dealt with. Yeah. And so when when we're thinking entitlement, again, I like to refer back to the Divorce Act, and you're looking at sort of what what is even what's the objective of, of spousal support? What is the courts trying to um do here when they're when they're making these orders for spousal support and so there's sort of four headings here and every order for spousal support is supposed to recognize any economic advantage or disadvantages to the spouses arising from the marriage or its breakdown it's to apportion between the spouses any financial consequences arising from the care of any child of the marriage over and above any obligation for the support of a child of the marriage, relieve any economic hardship of the spouses arising from the breakdown of the marriage, and insofar as practicable, promote the economic self-sufficiency of each spouse within a reasonable period of time. So this is a lot, and really in these statements sort of encompass 
cover sort of the um, basis of of entitlement we usually say to spousal support but before i even get technical there i wish i want us to kind of talk a little bit about these objectives so when we're i mean talking about economic advantages and disadvantages of spouses arising from marriage or its breakdown i mean the most obvious one i would say it's probably one spouse subordinating their career for the other right exactly or one spouse even just as a purpose of that having a larger income than the other spouse and and it's when you if you're looking at it from the outside in it's like well they worked hard they have more money what's the big deal but marriage is not is a legal concept it's i know these days it looks like it's it's just a romantic idea and yes it is 99 percent romantic until there's a separation and we're reminded that it's a 100 percent legal um process so with that comes certain um responsibilities but the truth is when people are in a relationship they structure their affairs differently so two people i mean hey look at michelle and um barack obama for example they're both harvard law graduates one was encouraged and and seen through politics and the other person took more of a first um, person role uh, um, first lady role right if we look exactly. at it just on paper whatever he did she could also have done so well yeah, Girl that, power that's there. That's the simple <laughs> career, and that's the economic disadvantage. Clearly, in that case. Yeah. So if I mean I don't know how much the president gets paid, but if she, <laughs> you know, that if, if he's getting paid an amount that she's not, and you know that's an economic disadvantage right there. Um, when you talk about the financial consequences arising from the care of any child of the marriage over and above an obligation for support of the child, so what we're talking about here is. A lot of times people people are fine with paying child support they're like well i'm going to support my child i mean they're my kids i'm fine with that but spousal support recognizes the fact that just having the children in your care alone there are financial consequences that may not be adequately dealt with just by child support alone right exactly especially if on the standard of living if there's, yes. a, dis there's a clear disparity between the incomes and their standard of living for the children and i i like i like that you said that because it reminds me and i think we've talked about this in an earlier episode as well where people think that you know the fact that they they're paying child support or maybe they have equal parenting they may not need to pay child support but they forget that yes while equal parenting might reduce the amount of child support you have to pay it increases the spousal support you might have to pay because again we don't want kids having stake in one home and barely having chicken fingers in another right so um the other um area sorry that we want to also that um to kind of continue down this list is the relieving of any economic hardship that the spouses that arise as a result of the breakdown of the relationship so um i mean that i think that's that's pretty self that's yeah. pretty self explanatory. Yeah, you know, that loss of standard of the the family standard of living or now just essentially having yeah. your only source of income in some cases taken yeah. away. So yeah, having obviously like a different lifestyle, you know, and being very accustomed to that standard of living, mm -hmm. even just from your relationship alone, you know, taking those lavish lavish vacations somewhere and, you know, having multiple homes and things like that. So that's a clear, very economic disadvantage. You're going to have to subdue 
you know, your financial lifestyle a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, when it comes to the care of the children, there is, especially when one parent has primary care of the of, of the children following a breakdown of the relationship, well, the, 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 hard, the economic hardship could continue because if you were the primary caregiver um, during the relationship, chances are you're fighting very hard to continue to be the primary caregiver after the relationship, but that could affect your ability to work, right? And so that economic hardship continues. It's not as easy as just go get a job. Well, we, we know that having a job and not having any childcare responsibilities is a completely different ballgame from somebody else that's able to maybe work overtime and climbing their career and get those promotions and things like that. And so the last and maybe one of my favorite ones is insofar as practicable, promote the economic self-sufficiency of each spouse within a reasonable period of time. So there's three things there. First, it has to be practicable. Yep. And then you you have to promote it. So it doesn't just mean that they, you know, the purpose of the spouse is supposed to help promote that um, self-sufficiency. And it has to be within a reasonable period of time. So, for example, if, you know, you have been the primary caretaker and let's say you don't have a college degree and in that period of time that spousal support, so is that that it's reasonable and that you're entitled to it, that maybe you want to go back to school and there's some support element that's paid for a period of time to allow you to be self-sufficient or even if you're you know dealing with young children at least for the period of time while you're dealing and maybe taking on that primary role that you have the ability to be self-sufficient and have the, the take that time ultimately so some people look at it in terms of a timeline like okay well she can be she could just get a job in three months and do xyz and again that might be appropriate but as in almost everything family law everything's looked at case by case because we're talking about people's individual circumstances but I think the main thing for the payors of support to remember is that it has to be practicable. So and within reason. We can't, yeah, we can't just say that, and within reasonable time, yeah, we can't just say, well, go get that education. If you have a couple of six-year-olds, it might not make sense for you to be able to go have a second job to be able to support your tuition. Go get that education and, and you know, just get a job in two years right after college and earn a hundred thousand dollars yeah and even even earning fifty thousand dollars may seem like a stretch especially yes. if you've never worked in an area like if you've never had that earning or you've, capacity. if you've been off work for many years exactly and you have to upgrade your skills it's very mm -hmm. unrealistic for someone to expect or maybe your job has just been entirely replaced by computers or exactly. you know automation some 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 form in that way but it's and it's not realistic to expect someone to earn that capability so Yes, the objective is to promote self-sufficiency, but it, again, it is within reason. And, and sometimes what we do, and again, I come back to collaborative family law because that's sort of where you're able to kind of tie these things in. Sometimes we say, okay, if your goal, if, if your goal is to have this other party um, self-sufficient um, as soon as possible, well, do you maybe want to pay more spousal support so they can afford to go to college, for example? Or do you want to support them by paying for, for babysitting and allow them that additional time? It would mean more economic um, payout in the short term for you, but at least it allows um, the other party, the recipient, to become more self-sufficient quicker. Okay, so now that we've gone over what spousal support is, who's a spouse, and, and you know, the kind of the factors and the objectives of spousal support, 
Let's talk about entitlement to the spousal support. So when we, I mean, so what are sort of the three broad heads we, we look at when we're looking at entitlement? So entitlement specifically, um, I mean, that's the most common thing you have to look that's at. That's the beginning. That's the starting point. Yeah. So I, I mean, entitled, just because someone might not have the ability to pay doesn't mean that you're not entitled to spousal support. So when you're looking at entitlement, there's three bases to entitlement, and that's a compensatory element a non-compensatory um, element and a contractual obligation. Yeah. So in turn, when you're talking compensatory, you're looking at, so with each of these, it's looking at your relationship and, and trying to um, figure out where it falls on the wise. And first entitlement is the threshold question. If there's no entitlement to, to spousal support, it doesn't matter if you're a spouse, it doesn't matter if, you know, these objectives are all like great and all, but if you're not entitled, you're not entitled. So that's always the starting point of any spousal support conversation. And the basis on which you're entitled to spousal support determine things like the duration of spousal support, the amount you get and things like that. So that's why entitlement is very important. The first threshold. People, yeah, people sort of gloss over it a lot, but it's, it's just don't. Yeah, just <laughs> yeah. for example, if there's like a huge disparity in incomes, it doesn't just because there's a huge disparity in income doesn't automatically entitle you to support because you mm-hmm. may not have that entitlement. And, and if it does, so if it does, it may not be on a compensatory basis. It may be on a non-compensatory slash needs basis. So I'm going to say just needs because it makes it's easier <laughs> for me to say than non-compensatory. But it might be that you're not entitled if you're entitled on a needs basis then the amount of spousal support that you receive on each of these separate headings differ right so for compensatory for the most part and these are non-exhaustive factors i'm just throwing things out there um you know you're looking at mostly longer term marriages marriages that or relationships i should say like relationships that have involved children for example yeah, hardship loss of opportunity yeah did you have to travel out of town to and support this you know person's this other person's career um choices um you know just so kind of things like that where you've subordinated your 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 life to a larger extent and for, for a longer period of time for the good of of the relationship yeah so, so i would speak. say that in in the most simplest way to look at it is if you're that stay-at-home parent um, taking on the majority of those domestic responsibilities and those child rearing phases, like and going on maternity leave or paternity leave, things like that, mm-hmm. and those loss of opportunities so, are so where more your compensatory, compensatory. element. So even on that compensatory, like on the um, maternity leave um, question, you might be in the workforce, but if you're the person, if you have three kids that are young and you've had to take maternity leave like three times and the other party maybe took some paternity leave but maybe a month or a couple of months and you've taken a year and a half you can't compare like the opportunities yeah. and i this mean is... like you know that spouse may have the one that you know isn't staying at home and on that leave is getting promoted and exactly you know obviously you're not you know able to social to network and get those advances in your career so mm-hmm. things like that um definitely are more on a compensatory element so on the non-compensatory, on the needs, um... yeah. So non non-compensatory, we call it the needs basis, the needs basis for support, um, and this is really to assist the other spouse in need and capacity to pay. So, for example, uh, the most common one is if the other obviously there's no there's an income discrepancy, but again, this is with the needs entitlement. 
but on a needs basis yes yeah, so say one of the spouses um is maybe sick or you know disabled or something of that nature and there's a clear needs basis to entitlement yeah so they might not so maybe there's not there's no other it's just the fact that they're there's ill sick for you know disabled for example is the only reason or this is where usually sort of that um lifestyle or standard of living um factors in so maybe you there's no it's a shorter marriage there's all of those other elements aren't um, for a compensatory basis aren't present but just the loss of the standard of life that you're used to in and of exactly. itself could um, entitle you to spousal support on a needs basis um contractual is just contracts is there a contractual basis for you to be entitled to spousal support a written contract is great but it's not necessary um an example of the top of my head would be say you know one person supported the other spouse through medical school and there was always an agreement that you would support the other one through law school for example so where sort of that agreement exists then that's a contractual basis yep for, it can be expressed for, yeah. or implied um another is, a, is an agreement like a cohabitation agreement mm-hmm. so a marriage contract and things yeah. like that that you know you've already established that you would be paying a certain element of spousal support upon the breakdown so as serena mentioned earlier your ability to to pay has nothing to do with entitlement and so if you if you're entitled for example on a compensatory basis and even though when we do the numbers actually before i i go into that an easier way to do that would be to start by talking about the effect of um child support on spousal support so when we run the numbers and do the calculations there's times where if there's a child support obligation because of the payor's income it may we might see a zero uh, amount for spousal support because child support trumps is taking the priority and that's the thing is they're going to put the importance on the child over Mm -hmm. spousal support unless we restructure the calculations but yeah. ultimately that's where the focus is going is that there is a child support obligation it doesn't mean that there again there's no entitlement but it may be there's no ability to pay after that payer is also paying child support exactly so that's in those cases how you deal with it is totally up to you and your lawyer but when i see a strong compensatory basis and a lack of ability to pay i usually just make it clear that okay for now we recognize that there's no ability to pay and we can deal with it later in the context of a review or variation, which we will talk about uh, later. So in determining um, sort of the amount that you receive, if you're, you know, you're probably thinking, okay, so we've heard all of this, how much do I have to pay and how do I figure that out? Or how much do you get if you're the recipient? Yeah, so there's different factors that go into determining that. One is the length of your relationship. Um, so that's a factor in the duration of, of how, of support. And usually when, I think it's a good part to talk about the spousal support advisory guidelines, the SAGs, it is not law. It is a guideline. You're not required to follow it, but honestly, if you set support outside of the ranges, there better be very good reason. Yeah, very, they're, they're very don't really go outside it. of the SAGs, which is yeah. the spousal support advisory guidelines often. So while it may not be mandatory, to it is kind say, of mandatory. <laughs> just like yeah, for the federal child support guidelines, they are mandatory when mm-hmm. we're looking at child support. The SEGs are more persuasive, but when I say they're more than more persuasive, 
Yeah, you better be looking at the segs when you're looking at entitlement and obligation and duration. Because remember like how we talked about the objectives, right? So if you pay something that's just way below what is um, required um, under the SAGs, then there's that concern of whether the spousal support you paid, did it meet the objectives of, of, of the um, of spousal support, right? So that's why we would generally not advise you going out of the SAG ranges, again, except we're restructuring and we're, it, it has, there has to be reason behind it. And so, for those wondering what SEGs are, it really are, like, they're calculations that will actually input, like, once we put in the information about your length of relationship, the amount of children you have, your your ages, would actually generate a formula for us to work with. Yes, yeah, so with the, with, the, with the calculation, it would usually show us what, you know, the duration would be. And this is, again, all based on the law. So the output is all based on the law. Generally, we know that for... For shorter um, marriages, the duration would be shorter. For for long-term marriages, for example, you know that you're definitely looking at an, an, um, an indefinite duration. Sometimes I would have people come in after 20, 23, 24 years of marriage, and they're like, well, I, I, I want to have an end date on so-and-so date, and I could tell them straight they, up. Were it's not, it's not going to happen. At least they acknowledge they have to pay. So I, I usually get it's, I'm not paying. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to pay anything. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, that's very un, uh, very unlikely. Unless, yeah. Unless you have an agreement, reality is. But there are ways to reduce the obligation. But again, with yes. a longer marriage like that and with the ability to pay, you're going to have a tough time saying that you – don't want to pay yeah or you want to pay for a limited duration so when when i find cases where a person is very it, it, the duration is very important to my clients then i'm more inclined to make sure that we settle this with a separation agreement versus going to court because guaranteed no judge is going to give you an end date with with a long-term um, marriage the best you could get is a review, which yeah. is not even likely. They probably would just say return when there's a material change in circumstances. But if we're lucky, we could get a review. So where duration is important, that's you want to think negotiation. I want to settle this. Um, yeah. You want to know. You want to negotiate you can have that a settlement sum or an automatic review period. Um, but definitely, I, I mean, I imagine the end date is obviously the most preferential for clients who are the support payers yeah and so when we with with us with the SAGs versus child support your child support just gives you the amount you're to pay based on on income and that's that with spousal support we get a range it's not a fixed amount so you have a low range mid-range and high range a mistake people often make even though it's been hammered down by the courts oftentimes the midpoint is not you don't have to pick the midpoint so that's not the right point it doesn't have to be compromised there's factors that go into the low mid or high so if you have a higher compensatory basis of entitlement for example the longer yeah yeah we're longer looking marriage. at more at the higher end if you have um you know maybe Short children or yeah. shorter duration you probably could go towards the lower end if you have children that are primarily in your in even in both parents care for example and you want to make sure that you have sort of the same quality of life in both homes then you go high for some reason people just think they have to default to the mid again it's great because it's 
you know, saves the argument one way or the other, but there's nothing, it's not a magic number. You have to, it's a legal argument as to where, yeah, as to where you fall in your, um, within the range. Yeah. So another thing, I mean, that goes into the conversation of how much support is going to pay, of course, is the income of both parties. Like, you know, we've talked about range and all of that, but really your income is the, is the bottom line. Um, I mean, what's your income for support purposes? If you're an employee, you're looking at line line like one fifty of your income. Uh, well, actually, generally for everyone, we could go with line one fifty because it encompasses your income from all sources. But as your lawyers, we know that you know certain incomes, like your business income, or your rental, rental income, yeah, they, they there's there's room for tweaking. Yes. There's so, room for tax and we're not saying anything illegal is going on there because you are allowed to do that under um, the Income Tax Act. But for support purposes, it's we're obviously, game. yeah, it's exactly. That's that's the easiest way to look at it. So we'll be looking at all of your, you know, different. If you have a business, the financial statements um, of the business and things like that. Just every source of income to make sure that we have a reasonable amount for your spousal. Um, support calculations on both sides and obviously from your income you're entitled to certain deductions obviously if you're paying union dues um in some cases maybe some mandatory um pension contributions again yes if you're withdrawing you could RSP, make that argument sometimes you can also you can claw things back um if, if you're receiving foreign income that may be taxed and Different grossed thing. up um but honestly if you're looking at income in general you may want to consider Section 7 expenses that you may be paying towards the children, that mm-hmm. those often, depending on the amount, can actually reduce the amount of spousal support paid because it's factoring in, again, the importance on the children and the ability to pay based off um, those amounts that you're also paying. So if you're paying a significant, maybe $10,000 in daycare fees, I mean, this is after tax credits, so <laughs> taking into consideration that, but so post-secondary expenses and things like that would also be a factor. Um, and then in, I guess, just determining that, you would maybe look at the net disposable income and then look again at the ranges. So, really, what the well, most appropriate range is. Yeah, so for me, the NDI, um, obviously, I always put an eye on, on the NDI and depending on the circle. Oh, sorry. NDI is <laughs> net disposable income. What does that actually mean? Because I have explained, like, I obviously know what it means, but I mean, for our listeners, I think it may be important to actually understand what net disposable income means. One of the biggest challenges that support payers have is how would I survive? If I tell you that you're paying $5,000 in spousal support, automatically you're thinking, well, I net I net $8,000 if I, I pay, pay how, how can I pay not even aside from that like how can I pay her more than I'm getting and like that's the way they're looking at it like this is my I know I'm making 10,000 but I'm really not getting this amount so the net disposable income takes into consideration all of your sources of income takes into consideration both parties tax positions and can show you what each of you what percentage of the family income would be left in each hand and I've always, and this is, I know I've had done videos on this and I've done, but I just can never emphasize this enough. Don't panic too much about the gross amount of spousal support you're paying. 
this is where the NDI considerations, or this is where the tax, because of the tax treatment of um, spousal support, given a choice between spousal and child support, I I pick spousal support anytime <laughs> because you you a portion of your spousal support payment is tax deductible to you. So once you're if you if cash flow is a concern, you can you can sign the relevant forms and your employers, for example, would would reduce the amount of source deductions that are taken from your income so that even though you're paying out this large amount, you it's not just that amount that you it's not that amount you're actually paying out because there's tax treatment of the amount. And the reason in its simplest terms is because while you're while support spousal support is tax deductible to you, it's taxed in the hands of the other party. So again, the NDI looks at when you pay that five thousand dollars to her, if she's paying twenty five hundred in taxes, how much is actually left in her hands yep. versus in your hands? And there is no magic number except I mean, there's general rules of thumb, right? So yeah. if if the children are 50 50 in both residences then obviously you're aging more towards yeah one's claiming the dependent credit the other one would be claiming the child tax but depending on well how it all it, goes into the it, ndi yes, consideration all factors in the no what i was NDI. trying to get at is if if there's if it's a 50 50 share parenting arrangement then you're looking more at a closer to a 50 50 ndi split so it's okay. how much of the incomes are you splitting because if you have children living in both places for equal amounts of time it really doesn't make sense from a legal perspective for one person to have just 20 percent of the net disposable income and the other person has the rest it might be fair because you're making more money i understand that but from the perspective of what works best for the children in that case it might not um, be appropriate and obviously children are not the only reason long-term relationships across being accustomed to a certain yeah. quality of life is is also a factor and things like that and um, we had already touched on the fact that you know if it's with or without child support formula that all goes into the net disposable income consideration if you weren't if we weren't clear child support is neutral there's no tax treatment to child support you cannot deduct child support from your income it's only um, spousal support that you can and obviously it's not it's the other party doesn't get the full amount free and clear mm -hmm. they have to um, think about taxes for themselves as as well um so I mean, what are, I guess I'm thinking, what are sort of options? So now you know what, you know, you've, you've done these calculations, you kind of see the different um, numbers, numbers, percentages, and it could get, it could really get overwhelming sometimes, but it's worth it because again, if you're going to be paying this amount for any number of years, you're better off just doing the hard work now and really having that conversation. It doesn't have to be conflict. It's a conversation about your entitlement about where in the range you should fall the location in the range if it's low mid or high you know would affect sort of the the ndi um that we're looking at it would also affect the taxes each party has to pay so it's it's all part of the process and you know it may be it would also look at the you would look at the duration and this is kind of where you can restructure your spousal support where you can say okay i would pay a lower amount for a longer duration, right? Or a higher amount for a shorter duration. 
Yes. This is where that negotiation aspect comes in. So yeah. let's say, you know, maybe the spouse is like, you know what, in three years, I think I'll be fine. I can do what I want to do. And I think I can be at an income where I feel comfortable, you know, not needing any more support. So you could actually restructure the scenario to actually have only three years. Mm-hmm. And then it would generate a number. And then you would pay that. <laughs> yeah. So you could force certain um, scenarios. And that's what we mean by restructuring. So if you want to pay longer or shorter with the duration and then, you know, changing the Cause, amount. Because sometimes people, there's free online tools where you can go calculate your support and it would spit out sort of this low, mid, high numbers. And people get overwhelmed with that and, and, all, of, and, and all of that. And we say, you know what, just don't. That's part of our jobs. Um, we're not. We may not be able to get you out of not paying spousal <laughs> support. We will try if it's appropriate, but you know, in some cases, it's just not supported by the law, and you will have to to pay that. And we, but that's where we hear your concerns. That's where we we find we other are, ways. Yeah. So if debt, you might be leaving the relationship and coming out with a lot of debt, and cash flow is a problem at that time. Yeah. So well, maybe what if you pay a little bit of an a lower amount to start. And the other party, if maybe the debt was incurred, for example, to pay an equalization payment, well, you're not hurting for money in the short term. So how about we extend it for um, a longer duration? But if any favorite one is is the lump sum, right? A lump sums I like if obviously it's a nice because it's clear and cut. Um, after unless you you know restructured your lump sum as well to be paid over a certain <laughs> over period, a period of, time. of time. But ultimately, people also like lump sums, and this is usually where they have the cash flow. Let's say, for example, they're selling the home and they're okay. Maybe what the other if the other party's buying the other out, so they would take a little bit of a less um, of the equity because to account for the lump sum. What I like about the lump sum is that it discounts for taxes, so it. Well, it's not, automa- well, not automatic. Well, it, it's but... not automatic because what a lot of people, Sheree, and you're, you're looking at it from a lawyer's lens. <laughs> you have to understand that for most clients that talk to me, when they think lump sum, they say, "Well, we've done this online calculation. I know I need to pay her for nine years," and then they take their calculator and they calculate the amount they're supposed to pay per month, multiplied by nine years, and that's not the case because you're you the huge. That you're losing by paying a lump sum you're losing the tax deductibility that you would get because if you pay a lump sum cra doesn't allow you deduct it from your taxes yeah. so what we do is we discount it for taxes and um that's what she remembered when she was like well you're ready to the love so yeah, she jumps so, to I the mean, end yeah, forgetting so. that some of you may not have the tools that she's using right <laughs> Yeah, so discounting it for for taxes is obviously um, a popular choice, (laughs) Um, but there's also different ways to set it. Like for a lump sum, let's say, for example, you have even a pension that you wish to pay out more, um, you know, Mm -hmm. than they're entitled to. So things like that, different ways to restructure a lump sum, you can use it from the property. Hopefully, if you have other assets available, you can pay it out that way. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, like that's a more... um, very Some clean. people like that because it's clean. I am I'm, I'm a fan of it for shorter term relationships as well. Like rather than just having to pay every month, um, just get it, just move on, just pay this lump sum and move on. But for some people, there is also a psychological element. Like they cannot, for the life of them, pay write that check every single month. Yeah, so a lump sum like, is, is good if for they, them. You know, maybe didn't leave on the greatest terms, and they truly just want to be mm-hmm. done. But what about, the, what about the recipient of the lump sum? Because sometimes it may not necessarily be the best for you. So I also look out for my clients where they're the recipient 
of course it's nice um i mean i declare advantages if anything happens Cash to his judge or whatever, I mean, to his job, then it's not your problem. You already took your cash. If you can invest it properly, um, that's great. You got your cash, you dip and you go, you know, maybe make some interest and make more money out of it. It works out better for you. Um, yeah. So I'm guessing one problem with that being the recipient is if you need to show some sort of level of income to maybe qualify for a home and let's say you're really not earning that much. And that, you know, that $2,500 in spousal support a month would have helped you obtain that mortgage. Oh, that's an interesting perspective for so sure. So that may be something that maybe, I mean, but again, getting a lump sum for a hundred and XYZ dollars, I don't even know, but it could, it could, help it could you. also help you get the down payment. So yeah. it, it, you can pick and choose mm-hmm. kind of, or sometimes. I guess it depends on how you're getting the lump sum. Because if you're getting it saved by way of an RSP transfer, you might not be able to pull out yeah, that much, might, and in that case, Lira, you may not be able to touch that for yeah. until you're at least 50, 55. And even then, like the taxes, if you pull out so much, exactly, you can only pull out a maximum withdrawal every year. So, yeah, it's so it, it's a lot of considerations. I even if you're the payor or the, or recipient, the recipient that you want to consider when making these decisions. And and when also advising my client, that again, you need to know your client. If I have a client that. And no disrespect here, but if I see a pattern of either not being responsible with money or just doesn't or lacks the sophistication, I may not necessarily, I mean, I, I can't make the decision for them. It's theirs to make, but I'll let them know what they're involved in. So if you have the payor that's in a very stable job, has been there for years, likely going to be there forever, you may not want to take that lump sum because I have concerns over can they invest the money? What would they just, if it's someone that has, say, gambling addiction now, I get concerned on behalf of my clients as well because have I just handed you, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that could be gone and now you're broke. And even if it's not your client too, if, if my client is the person that's going to be paying that lump sum and you're telling me about this gambling addiction that she has, then that's something that we really want to be mindful of. Because even though there's rules around double dipping and, and there can be fine, we can put in a fine of spousal support release and things like that. You also know that the court still has that residual jurisdiction. Yeah, to, nothing is so final. Yeah, that a court, court cannot interfere with yeah. it. <laughs> so that's one thing to note. Like, um, yeah. And the one thing I recommend is like, sometimes people would come to me maybe having a separation agreement that only deals with like one or two issues and not the issue of spousal support. And they come to me saying, you know what? The, she actually doesn't want spousal support. And I'm like, well, let's add that to the agreement. You, yes. Because the one thing you should know about spousal support, you can come to claim that at any time. There is no limitation period, such yes. as property, which is like six years mm-hmm. after separation and two years after a divorce. There is no time limit for you to bring your claim for spousal support. Yes. So, I mean, of course, the timing would be consi- the, for- the court would consider why so late. If it, it might affect later. entitlement and things like that. But... but- you, don't you definitely want to live like that. Yes. I, I'm like, honestly, if you want that clean break, you want to make sure everything is spoken to. Again, there's always so much finality you can have, but you want you want to be able to sleep at night. And that spousal release could, could do that could really for you. Change, so just... Could really change that for you, especially because most people don't know that, you know, it, just because you had a verbal agreement, She's, that you know the other's not going to go after spousal support that doesn't protect you or if you're just silent on the issue of spousal support exactly that definitely doesn't protect you yeah. because it doesn't show that your intention was to release spousal support yeah so. you know something interesting happened um with me this is probably about five years ago 
my client was the one that was the um higher no my client was the lower earning spouse and the other side we were you know having this conversation about spousal support and unfortunately that the other the person that should have been the payor suffered um i can't remember what it was maybe a stroke or something it was a medical situation now we were in a position where my client w would now may potentially be exposed to a spousal support obligation on a needs basis wow see so you know ever since then i don't like to lose lose end i wish everybody the great health and a long life but i just don't want to be that person that left that loose end and now all of a sudden my client exactly. you know is on the hook for spousal support so i want that release i want it to be mutual releases so i release you from any obligation you release me because the tables can turn essentially exactly and you never know what can happen during you know that period of time like you could before signing a separation agreement you know the other party can get into a terrible car accident and that can change their entire needs basis for yes. support so again in this world I mean, never don't... leave a stone unturned <laughs> you just never know well you, you, you in your morbid example <laughs> it's before they sign a separation agreement so i don't even know if there's anything they could have done there because that I, would I just know, but be unfortunate i guess like yeah fine and that's very fine <laughs> but just definitely put your mind to it don't think that you know just because you know you have an agreement you know between yourselves that you're not going to go after certain things you want to make sure that you're it's articulated each way yeah and on that you know since we're talking all things dark let's talk about security for spousal support because what if after you agree to spousal support and this would um well actually it could apply to a lump sum if it hasn't been paid yet or usually for people that are on periodic support payments what happens if the other party dies you know like as you so mentioned as part of our jobs <laughs> lawyers especially with periodic support payments is to make sure that that support obligation is secured somehow the most common way is life insurance to mm -hmm. you know we find out how much of that obligation how much of that policy you need to set aside mm -hmm. we may have review provisions for you know lowering that amount as each yeah year so I, I think what should say so people have a higher like some people might have a million dollars in spousal support for example yep. and you don't have to name your your ex as just the beneficiary to your one million dollars we would do yeah, the math and let you know she might be only entitled specific. to two hundred thousand for example exactly. so the policy yeah. value you would actually designate your spouse or the recipient that's earning that's receiving the support as an irrevocable beneficiary, so you can't automatically change it. Mm -hmm. um, we would add provisions for replacement coverage if it's not available at the time of death. Or, or a charge on your estate. Yep. You yeah, so if you die lien. without that support, then remember it's binding on your estate. And, you know, I mean, you may not, you may or may not care, but if you care, just remember that the, your loved ones may be in a legal battle with your yeah ex. and the one thing you want to know is if you're if you're paying if your state is paying spouse support that's actually not deductible with your estate so you may want to consider making mm -hmm. sure that you have that support element with secured um so again like she said there is like angela said there are security such in the form of a binding on a first charge against the other party, party's estate yeah some um, people you can even put a lien on a property yes you can put yeah because some so people get concerned ways. about if you don't have existing life insurance and you're you know you're older if it's a great divorce and it, yeah yeah you don't want to get be very, expensive, very expensive which is where my mm -hmm. clients really like the lump sum approach because 
oftentimes it's just paid out and there's no security. But if they have a home, we could just, you know, put a lien, um, some kind of collateral mortgage or something you on the home. You can even designate them as part of your beneficiaries for your RRSPs for a particular amount. So there's so many different ways to restructure it if you need it um and you know if life insurance is too so don't costly. be don't be freaked out yeah, yeah but <laughs> know that it is an obligation that you do have and you definitely don't want your estate to be dealing with that i mean you know i would have to say it's simpler when you're dead because you don't care <laughs> but you definitely want to keep that in mind yeah especially yeah if you're leaving people that you love you know if you have if you're in another marriage for example and you have other kids you want to make sure everyone's put provided for right even when you're gone the last thing you want for them is to be in a costly legal battle with your ex like especially if you were in a legal battle while you were alive you don't want that happening again while you're dead and it's these things are can be dealt with very easily we just need you to put your mind to it um on an ongoing basis so now oh sorry Shane, did you want to add there something? was one thing i want to talk about which was post-separation increases in income. that's exactly great minds that's exactly where oh, okay, i was going great. that's exactly what i was thinking i'm like well when we have that um, periodic support, what happens when your income goes up, right? So the common misconception is that people either want to review support every single year, which we, we never really No, I don't really do. like it. Yeah, um, but also uh, there's, no there's no automatic entitlement to any increase in that other payer's actual increase in their, their income. So say one year they're earning $100,000, the next year they're earning $200,000. There's no automatic entitlement for you to be receiving support based on a $200,000 income versus that $100,000 income. Yeah. Could you potentially be entitled? Maybe. Yeah. But you have, we have to set it out. So if we, if for whatever interesting reason, the lawyers, because I are clearly sure and I are not fans, we like finality. We like to wrap things up nicely, put a bow on it and be done. Of course, it's not always possible. If for whatever reason, um, you know, a review is appropriate, then we we when we review spousal support and review that greater amount again as you said we don't just automatically just take the two hundred thousand there's factors right so is it the same job and you just by chance just got promoted within the same um company then in that case maybe there is some entitlement if your ex helped you say in get to where you were at the time of separation and you've had to do nothing extra but yeah. if you've done some extra trainings, if you've changed yeah, jobs, this is if like you... maybe two years, three years down the line, like the 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 entitlement would be a little less. Yeah, um, no, I, I have I have argued I have argued even with time that there's still entitlement because if you're in the same job, I'm saying, well, you're you're enjoying this higher income because of all of the effort that my client put in over twenty years of marriage. So I don't care if it's five, ten years later. I think you're still entitled. Where I I draw a distinction for my clients that I don't want to pay um, a higher amount is I say, well, he's done XYZ training. You weren't a part of that training. You weren't yeah. a part of, um, I don't know, of him networking and, and finding a new job. And traveling and, and securing yes. better networking and getting yeah. different contracts and things like that. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so yeah, so you may or may not be entitled to the post-separation increases, but the point again is, these things are not automatic. You need to show entitlement. You need to put your mind to it. And, you know, if you're that person that's increased your income, don't think you just automatically have to give out this blank check. Just put your mind to what you're doing now. And is that person really entitled to, um, you know, that, that increase? And even on that note as well, um, you know, sometimes I want to kind of talk about, I don't know if to call this double dipping, but I guess that's 
Yes, what it is, I guess. I think it's the easiest way to double. I think that's the easiest way. To yeah, because if if my client split their pension with with the other spouse, and now as part of equalization. Yes. And then now they're dealing with the issue of spousal support, maybe on a review. Post separation, and my client's income is just solidly based out of that pension that's already been divided. Um, it may not be appropriate yeah. because you're using both income sources. You, you're basically double tapping into the same income source, yes. both at the time of separation. So at the time after. of separation, you got it as, as property in equalization. And then now you want to still get that same money um, as support. Long story short, you're most likely not going to be successful yeah. in, there the, are in that ways. case. There are ways to work around it. Of so course, there as, always are ways. Oh. <laughs> So, so that's like, um, looking at the factor of like maybe if it, the pension, if your income is only comprised of pension income um, earnings, then you may look at the part of the pension that wasn't equalized and mm -hmm. what that what that actual income is. So that would require um, an actuary to actually mm -hmm. determine what those income sources are. But you definitely want to keep your mind open that you don't just automatically get to double dip into yeah. tap into the same income source that you did as part of and if, the if you're of the assets. person that's trying to resist double dipping um well your argument could also be well i want to know what she did with the capital that she received exactly. right because she has they have the recipient also has the obligation to basically invest those monies and make the same self-sufficiency self-sufficiency but also to income generate those exact same assets that they received upon um equalization yeah so that's the point like remember we talked about one of the objectives is to promote economic self-sufficiency so taking that money and it's because of over the years and sort of things that have happened in my experience that made me you know think of things like how is this person going to use this this lump sum capital, for example, because then you give it to them and it's not impossible that someone just squanders their lump sum and then they are back at needing support. And then the courts again and having this conversation about entitlement and, and, and whatnot and, you know, policy reasons on why you may need to pay. But that's a totally different podcast. I'm not going to take us down that hole. But remember as a support recipient you have an obligation to become self-sufficient and self-sufficiency is not limited to getting a job or getting a better paying job and getting training no investing your capital is one way that you're you're yeah, going so to try your income things. generating assets will form part of your income yes so but let's talk about you know a situation where someone's done none of that they've not tried to improve themselves even though they have the opportunity to or they've just squandered their assets or even just straight out refused to properly invest their assets and just relying on, on spousal support. Well, again, that's where imputation of income yeah. comes into place because, again, the objectives clearly state that, you know, you have an obligation to be self-sufficient. As much as I would also like to sit there and receive a check every day, I also know that my obligation far extends beyond that. If I have, I have the ability to... I should be able to be self-sufficient. I so, like that you added the ability to, because in some cases it's not possible. Yeah, like for some cases where you're permanently disabled and you really don't have the ability to just go out, if you have a debilitating, um, you know, disability that doesn't actually just let or you go. Or even childcare responsibilities, actually. Yeah, if you have a child with a disability and things mm -hmm. that require more intensive, you know, um, home duties. Mm -hmm. I, I don't even think that makes sense, but you understand what I mean, that you're at home, <laughs> you're required to be at home, there's things that limit your ability to actually be self-sufficient, that's that's fair enough, but I'm talking about in terms of 
purposely, intentionally being underemployed. Yes. And being non-self-sufficient. That's where the other party, who is the payor, would say, you know what? No, you have an obligation to be self-sufficient. You haven't even tried. Maybe you've never even done, you know, job efforts and search like things or you, like that. Or just might be underemployed. We know you're able to be in management, but you just choose to remain at an entry-level job because you don't want to extend yourself, right? Yeah, and that's where the court would determine whether or not it's appropriate to impute income to you based on what we believe a person in your capacity and ability would be able to earn. Yeah, exactly. I'm well... Imputed income could also go the other way to the payor if you're if, exactly. If but you we have feel, to be if, careful. <laughs> if your income, if we feel like you're also being underemployed or you're underreporting your your income, um. So let's talk about like review and variation of of support orders, right? So these come up in the context of you already have. I mean, if you paid a lump sum, then good for you. You're done and you can move on with your life. Um. But if it's if it's a periodic um, amount and there's no end date. end date, then yeah, you're looking at either a review or variation. And in the simplest terms, it's not the same thing. A review is you guys determine now that on a certain date we would look at at support at the time, and and at that point we can review the entitlement, this and that, the amount, all of the factors we would review at a set point in the future variation when we when we think variation you're really thinking material change having to show a material change in circumstances um so they're they're different um if you have an indefinite spousal support um obligation for you to terminate support or for you to even reduce the amounts that you're paying you're going to need to show not just a change a material change in circumstances um, I'm not the biggest fan of reviews and I think we said that already, but there's cases where it's appropriate and yeah. So like a very, you know, foreseeable retirement date. Yeah. Or know. even with COVID now, this is another good time that exactly. we could use reviews because if a, if a client is separating now and due to COVID, um, the, the payor's income is very low. Well, maybe we should, I don't want to have to show a material change in circumstances and have to prove that you know, the economy is now back up and things have or improved. Or maybe the economy has, you know, significantly impacted your ability to actually earn the same. You know, yeah. let's say maybe you were earning a specific income and you're not yeah. sure if you can even maintain it. You would maybe automatically True. do a review within a one-year period because there are lots of industries that are going to be separating um, when we start opening up, and, exactly. You know, yeah. if you're if you're lucky enough to listen to this um this this podcast during the pandemic lockdown that we're still in, <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely a consideration. COVID significantly impacted mm -hmm. a lot of those. Um, yeah, and you were, I think you were saying earlier as well, retirement. So if we can see that retirement is imminent, right? So if it's going to be, you, I mean, retirement can be a material change in circumstances. But if we already know it's going to be happening in two years. Let's just have a review at yeah, that time. Yeah, I'd like to and, add it. So then yeah. it would be based on, you know, the retirement income at that point. But again, considering what we've also talked about, double dipping. So we would go over those considerations. Yeah. Well, my I guess my biggest concern with reviews, and it happens when payors are saying, well, I want, for me, it must happen. It happens more often in the context of my payor client not wanting to pay more in support they're so convinced that the other spouse is able to earn more and should earn more and they want to come back in two years and they want to 
And my fears, like yeah. Be, and my only fear is we may come back and you may find yourself paying more. Exactly. So it's a risk. It's that, yeah. that's definitely something that I would have to look at the circumstances. But yeah. I, 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 I if you're one of those people in a job where you automatically get pay increases and you know there could be any number of reasons why the recipient has not improved on herself, and you'd be surprised the courts may not. They're not going to do anything to her. Yes, they might suggest she pay more. They may not impute income to her depending on the circumstances. And it may not be the income that you're thinking of. Yes. So it has to, again, So imagine, realistic. yeah, imagine if you've had a $40,000 um, increase in, in income or a 50 grand increase and now the other person has, is imputed an extra $10,000. Like you may still find yourself paying more. Exactly. So just be, just be very careful when, when doing reviews. Um, the material change in circle for variations, obviously, a material change has to be something that's you that know, was unforeseen at the time. So, so, for example, maybe you know the payer became permanently disabled, got into a car accident, mm -hmm. no longer earning income. That would be industry wiped out due to exactly. COVID. Exactly, that's been the most probably most common ground even now, just to very to very support obligations. But even even uh, to be honest, though, even now, I'm not necessarily accepting. COVID considerations as a material change, I could temporarily suspend it because we don't know, right? It's not, it's, not, it's not a very, we I don't mean, know what's going to happen. It's a temporary situation. Yes. So you may put a pin in it to yeah. review at a later date. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but it would also be a consideration where, especially during these past year and a half, where, you know, if you're in, in restaurant industry and, you know, you're, not lucky to be one of these big box restaurants. Yeah. That you ultimately maybe you were forced to close or, you know, claim bankruptcy and things like that that actually permanently affected your mm -hmm. ability to But look at like let's income. say you got your income from say if you're a hotel owner, for example, and you know, this these last if we base support just if on the last couple of years, you may it may look like like it's gonna be a zero amount or whatever, and that's fine. We could temporarily suspend support if it's appropriate. But I don't know if I want to call that a material change to terminate support or to permanently vary support because, as we all know, everyone's itching to go somewhere. So the tourism industry, if the experts are correct, is going to blow up at some unknown point when the pandemic ends. So, but anyway, I think you get the gist of what we mean by material change in circumstances versus um, a review. A review is almost, I guess we could say automatic, a material change um a variation due to material change you have to show that it's material material <laughs> so, enough to work and it's a change that's yeah. material okay so um when you have your support um agreement or that um support order you you know the ways um there's different ways you can receive your payments i guess um you know you can get it through fro which is the family responsibility office um, something you need to put your mind to, if you're getting it, if your support is as a result of a court order, you will automatically, um, your support would automatically go through the family responsibility office. And you now you have, if you want to withdraw from that, you have to file the notice of withdrawal. Um, if you, if your support is based off of a separation agreement, for example, then you need to register and you want it to be enforced with fro you need to um, register it with with the family responsibility 
ability office for, for <laughs> by filing for, it with the yeah, court by exactly. the courts for them to enforce it i love for enforcement because in my mind i'm thinking if you've gone through this entire process to get to the point of getting your support order the last thing you you want is to also have to enforce it fro has you know wide enforcement powers that you may not be available to you as an in individual to to enforce however <laughs> if you're the support payor i'm not a super fan of enforcement because terminating support that's going through four can be a nightmare it's and again it's or just even sometimes when you're taking maybe a couple on because it comes it's garnished automatically off of your pay depending on how if you're an employee um, and let's just say for example you know you took a month off of vacation or things like that and you're automatically you know you're operating at a less of an income off the top I mean mm -hmm. some people like it because they just it's just it coming just off the off. top yeah but at the same time like most of my like uh, yeah most of the support pairs don't usually like to go through fro yeah when we when we do agreements we would I mean and the parties are okay with not going through fro but we would usually advise that we put in a clause there that if you've not paid if you're yeah. late by a week or a couple there's of weeks there's some penalty there's some interest that accrues there's some there's yeah. some consequence to not paying for sure and for um, enforcement and as well enforcement ultimately. would ultimately take place after you know some consistent not compliance with the with the payment amount yeah so um the last thing i want to talk about is the co like cost for spousal support or no that's not the right way to put it okay let me paint the picture here. So if you went through a court process to get your spousal support and now you have that spousal support order, you've been successful and you've been awarded legal fees. The last thing you, you want to have to deal with is enforcing collection of, of the legal costs that you've been awarded by the court. So generally in those circumstances, I would plead with the courts to make the cost order a spousal support order and again this is in cases where there's no cash available to pay me to, to pay you out right so if there is a home that's being sold chances are you could get the the cost award paid out from there there's other ways but i mean that's very smart because to be honest sometimes well, spousal support survives bankruptcy so for example if maybe you know that that spouse may have an intention to file for <laughs> bankruptcy, then maybe you yeah. want to secure some of your cost um, or even an equalization payment as some sort of support obligation. That would be the a very wise choice. So, okay, so that's it today on um, most things spousal support because I'm sure, as you can imagine, there's a there lot that so we many. didn't touch on. But this is this is our fundamental series, so we are trying to just leave you with the fundamentals and except you have anything else to add Shireen? No that's everything if you ever do need some assistance or some advice on the issue of spousal support and whether you're entitled or if you're the support payer and you know just considerations to consider please um, visit our website at aprincewill.com and I'm sure you can find some more information on where to find us. Absolutely and more free resources as well to help you um, as you conduct your spousal support research <laughs> and for now, I guess um, it's a goodbye and talk to you later. Goodbye. Thanks for listening and joining us in the AP Legal Zone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find more episodes by searching AP Legal Zone on anywhere you watch podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast today so you can stay connected with any updates and get notified about any new episodes. Mm -hmm.